The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, Doxa Church. Um, today, our scripture reading is in Luke 9, 23 through 27. You can follow along on the screens or in your Bibles under your seats. And he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This has been God's word. Good morning. You know, I'm a new father myself, and I love kids. I think uh, that's a, a new feeling for me. You know, you know, right? Before your parents, you don't really know how to deal with the crying and the, the noise, and, but you get over that very quickly. So, well, how was everybody's Thanksgiving? Good? Looks like some, what's that, what's that stuff in Turkey that makes you sleepy? What is it called? Tryptophan? You guys have a little tryptophan in you still. So um, apparently, I have big news this morning. Um, I walked in, and if any of you are football fans, Clemson Carolina played last night, and I, I, a lifelong Carolina fan, renounced my allegiance to South Carolina. I have, and I didn't think it was that big of a deal. This is, has been a season-long situation for me, and uh, James Stedman, a Carolina fan, was very offended by my uh, switching sides. So uh, <laughs> he told me, he said, are you preaching today? I said, yeah. He said, well, I don't know if I can trust your sermon now. <laughs> I said, well, that's a, that's a reasonable thought. If I flip teams, who knows what I'll say, right? A little more care has gone into the sermon than my fanhood. But anyway, so a couple weeks ago, I was in Boston. I was up there for work. And I love Boston as a city. And one of the gentlemen that I was with had spent eight years at Harvard. So he went to med school at Harvard, <coughs> and then he did his undergrad there as well. And so part of what he did was he took us on a walking tour of Harvard, which I didn't know is the oldest university in the United States. It was founded in the mid-1600s. And so we get to the beginning of Harvard, and it was like a, you know, I'm in dress shoes and stuff. I, I mean, I should have brought tennis shoes. I mean, we walked all over Cambridge, which is the city. And so he asks us, there was a, a, several of us there. He asked us, he said, before we start, does anybody know the difference between a pilgrim and a Puritan? And I don't know if any of you know the answer, but I didn't. So I'm going to tell you. A, a pilgrim was one of the original 102 that came over in 1620. And they came over on the Mayflower. And this is what we think about when we're in grade school and, and thinking about uh, Indians and uh, the relationship established and the sharing of friendship and fellowship. So that was in 1620. Well, the first Thanksgiving was in 1621. But it wasn't until 1630 that the Puritans came over. They were both, both groups were seeking religious freedom from the church in England. 
but it was the Puritans that wanted to establish uh, what they called a new city. So they felt like the best way to share their faith was to infiltrate every single part of life. And so they wanted to build businesses. They wanted to build educational institutions. They wanted to uh, change the way that commerce was done for God's glory. And so they did that. There's a guy named John Winthrop who really spearheaded that in 1630. And so they started Harvard University. And they started many of the Ivy League school with the uh, premonition of advancing God's glory through every avenue of life. So much of our national heritage actually comes from the Puritans. Uh, The Pilgrims had very little impact after their original uh, 1620 voyage, which I thought was interesting. And the Puritans, if you read up on it, they, they were also had some flaws. They were very arrogant people. Uh, Salem witch trials, if you guys are familiar with that. So if you didn't believe what they believed, they would literally burn you. And so uh, they weren't perfect people. But you get the point of the story, right? So it, that, that's where much of our national heritage comes from. And it's good for us to think about uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of what was done prior to uh, us sitting here together. But what's even more important is for us to think about our spiritual heritage. And that's what we want to do this morning. And that's what we've been doing in the Gospel of Luke. You see, the Gospel of Luke is a story about the life of Christ. And we've been in it since September now, I think. And so if you've uh, been in and out or you're a new face here, um, we can never think about Christ too often. You know, even... There are depths and layers to who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and what he did. And so we can never dive into that too many times. And so where we find ourselves uh, in Luke chapter 9, which we read a little snippet of it uh, earlier, is uh, to this point in Christ's ministry, right? So he has uh, busted onto the scene. His cousin John the Baptist was born. He was baptized in the early chapters. And so now we've seen Jesus progressed till about age 30. And so that's where he is. And Luke 9 is the pivotal chapter in the entire gospel of Luke. Now it's not the climax. The climax is obviously at the end of the chapter, or at the end of the book, when Jesus is crucified and uh, buried and then risen. That's the climax, but the, the turning point in the gospel of Luke is in chapter 9. And so up to this point, uh, Jesus has kind of stayed out of the spotlight. He's uh, moved around. He's uh, traveled around a little bit. He's, he's gathered a posse at this point, And there's a buzz starting to happen. So people are now traveling 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 miles to hear Jesus talk. And the question that keeps surfacing in Luke chapter 9 is, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? We know a little bit about him, but there's something different about Jesus. And so in the several stories we see in Luke 9, we see who Jesus actually is. And he even, he even, he even takes a poll. He was probably, I guess, like the first uh, pollster, right? He asked Peter, he says, who, who, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
And uh, that, that's, what, that's what the contents of Luke 9 focuses on, but that's not what we're going to spend our time this morning. So what we want to think about this morning is from the life of Christ, what are a couple of distinguishing marks that Christ followers ought to have? And so that's, that's where we're headed this morning. And why would we want to think about that? Why would we want to think about what the Christian life should look like? I think a couple of reasons. One is if, if we are to conform to Christ-likeness or be made into the image of Christ, become more and more like him, like Romans 8 says, then we want to think about how he lived his life. If we are to be ambassadors of Christ. So if you think about what an ambassador is, there's a lot of political uh, buzz going around. An ambassador speaks on behalf of a particular country or nation or movement. And so if we are instructed in Corinthians to be ambassadors for Christ, it's important for us to think about how we're living, how we're thinking, how we're talking, how we're acting. And so that's, that's my aim this morning. If, if I could boil it down into one sentence, one line, here's what I hope we do this morning together, is get a full picture of what the Christian life will entail. And then I hope to persuade you as to why, no matter the cost, it's worth it. So that's my aim this morning. That's where we're headed. Let me pray real quick, and then we can, uh, we can dive in, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you for your mercies, for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you the way that that shows itself in uh, family dinners, in laughter, in uh, childbirth, in friendships, in relationships. Lord, you've been kind to us in so many ways. Would you help us to think about in the right way how we ought to be living. Would you help us to think about how we ought to serve and worship you because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just have three points if you're, if you're taking an outline. The first point comes from what we read, which is Luke 9, 23 and 27, is that the Christian life is marked by cross-bearing. And so I just want to give a little kind of context to what that would mean. Uh, where we are in verse 23, Jesus has just told Peter and his disciples that he's going to die. And then he tells them that if anyone uh, would follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and come after me. And if you've spent any time in church, you've probably heard that. Probably heard that phrase. It, it appears in Matthew. It appears in Mark. And uh, pieces of it appear later on in Luke as well. And so if, if, you're, if you're the disciple at that point, you would have been very familiar with what a cross was. You'd have been very familiar with who carries crosses. And it was those who were going to be crucified. And at this point in history, this was the worst death that you could die. To be hanged on a cross and tortured, nailed, it uh, asphyxiated your lungs, you couldn't breathe. 
um, uh, among a, a number of other things. And so it would have been very interesting. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Think about that. You're, you're hanging out with one of your best friends. He tells you he's going to die. And then he tells you, if you want to follow me, you have to go die by crucifixion. That would have been what they were thinking. Although it was true that many of them would actually die for the sake of the gospel, uh, not all of them would. So you could imagine sort of the imagery that they would be thinking about and the uncomfortable nature about, what, what do you mean that we have to take up our cross and follow you? What, what, is, what does that mean? And so let me provide us just for, for definitional purposes what Jesus means by cross-bearing. There's a number of things, but let me just kind of start, uh, which will, it'll be very, very helpful, I think, as we, as we work through Luke 9 together. So here's what I mean, and here's what I believe Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. It's the act of denying your own will or our own will for the pursuit or the embrace of God's will. So it's denying our will for the pursuit of God's will. And we see here, Jesus says we do that in two ways. If you're looking at the text, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So the first aspect of cross-bearing is that we deny ourselves of something. That we're self-denial, rather. The second aspect, which is interesting, is that Jesus says, and you got to do it every day. So the confusion would have been amongst the disciples. How, being crucified was a one-way ticket. It wasn't a round trip. You go up, but you don't come back down. And so what could you possibly mean that we're to die daily or take up our cross daily? And so what Jesus means here is much more at a heart level. Is if we're to bear a cross or be cross-bearing, we have to deny our will in pursuit of God's will. And so certainly there's an aspect of that which much of us would be familiar with, the, the, what I'll call the, the horizontal aspect of cross-bearing, right? Uh, acts of service, um, uh, faithfully serving your church, uh, caring for the poor giving to the needy and the widowed and the orphaned, um, uh, serving and bearing burdens with your uh, uh, brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, th- those sorts of things are what I'm going to call horizontal cross-bearing. That, that, that's the, the output of what Jesus would mean. Because if we're to deny ourselves of something, it would be for the denial of our will, what we want to do. But I want to focus on the vertical aspect of cross-bearing. So certainly those are important. Uh, Love your neighbor. Those are absolutely commands from God. But what I think Jesus is laying the foundation here for is the vertical aspect. What has to happen this way in the Christian's life to make this way even possible? And so let me see if I can make a bridge here. So... If the definition of cross-bearing is the act of denying our own will for the pursuit and embrace of God's will, then that means we could also say that bearing our cross is self-denial. We're not, not in a sense that 
we're ignorant to something, but self-denial in the sense that we're denying ourselves of something. And so let me read a quote. I think this is helpful. It's by John Piper. It says, the call for self-denial teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. So the call for self-denial, which is bearing our cross, take up your cross and follow me, is self-denial. It teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. So then cross-bearing is at a vertical level, the complete or total surrender of pursuing joy in anything other than God. So when Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me, what he's telling them is if you want to deny yourself of your own will and your own pleasure and your pursuit of lesser joys, we'll call it, then you have to pursue joy and satisfaction in me. And so that's what, that's what Jesus is hitting at here, is the pursuit of satisfaction in God above everything else. And so I, I, that's, I think that sounds like we would all agree with that. Yeah, of course. Why would Jesus even tell us that? That's a given. Of, of course we ought to find our joy in him. Well, I know for myself, I'll just speak for me personally. I'm not in danger of finding too much joy in God. That, that is not my bend. I, I don't think that's any of our bends. We don't wake up every morning and say, man, I cannot wait to find supreme joy in God over everything else. We don't wake up that way at all. Whether you're a Christian or you're exploring the faith or you're uncertain about where you stand, that's, that's not our bend. We're, we're in danger of finding too little joy in God. We're in danger of finding no joy or satisfaction in God. And so what he tells his disciples here is, that's why you have to do it every day. So to take up your cross daily is to daily, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, daily fight to find the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate joy or delight in God over everything else. And so as I was thinking through this, as I was sort of letting it sit on my own heart, I, I, I think there are two ways in which Satan would try to lie to us. That's the easiest way to say it. So, so here, for me, these are two ways that I think as we're, as we're considering this, we're considering what it means to find ultimate joy in God above everything else. I think the first lie that Satan will throw at us, that he, I think he throws at me, is to take up our cross must mean that we're giving up joy. Right? That sounds like a pretty gruesome thing. Sounds pretty tiresome, laborious, intense. Oh, I can't find any delight in anything but God. There's no joy in that. Kind of like Eeyore. That's not true at all. The, taking up our cross and following God 
is not an impediment to our joy. It's a progression in our joy. That if we, are, we want to have more joy, then we ought to take up our cross more often. Because joy is only found. Satisfaction, contentment, rest, like Candace was praying, peace. That is only found when we're delighting in the ultimate satisfaction. And that is God himself. And so I think the second lie that Satan would attempt or persuade us to believe is that our future, our future is better, more attractive, more enjoyable if we get to have Jesus and. Right? If this, this lifestyle as a Christian is not self-indulgent, so really my future is probably brighter if I get to pursue some of the things I like, some of the things I enjoy, some of the, uh, the things that bring me pleasure. But the truth is, and we see this laced through Scripture, uh, Psalm 1611 comes to mind, that there are pleasures at your right hand. That real, real, substantive joy, the kind of joy that's not moved or shaken, only comes in God. And so the essence of sin is to find delight in anything other than God. And that's our bend. And hmm. I'm wrestling whether to sort of, okay. Um, When we think about taking up our cross and following God and finding ultimate satisfaction in him, that is a growth in personal holiness. That's what it means to conform to the image of Christ. And this week as I was, I, I had a, a good bit of time to think on this. I've been thinking about Luke 9 for a couple weeks. And I had to, I had to come to grips as I was thinking through this particular section, that the Christian life is marked by cross-bearing or self-denial, that probably the greatest failure that I've had as a Christian over the last 10 years is my refusal to find my deepest joys in God. That I got, I got one hand over here on... Uh, Money, status, talents, gifts, um, pride, anything you can name. Anything that I'm trying to suck satisfaction or joy out of to make me feel better. And then I got another hand up here trying to reach for Jesus. And so I look back and I, I've, I've got to be honest with myself that over the last 10 years since God saved me, I have tried to contextualize Christianity. I have tried to make it feel cooler. I've tried to be nonchalant with my coworkers, with my family. I have failed miserably on a personal level at taking up my cross and following Jesus. And I was thinking through that this week. And I, I know many of you in here um, 
three, four, five, six, seven years. If my failure to find my delight in God has affected any of you or has impeded or stopped you from finding your joy in the Lord or I've offended you or hurt your progress in holiness, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to be about that anymore. I want to be about finding my ultimate delight in Christ. I want to be about finding joy and treasure in Christ above everything else. I want to be about that. No matter the cost. And it will cost. Luke 14, Jesus tells us, if you want to be my disciple, you better count the costs. It will cost you, friends. It will cost me. It will cost us to deny ourselves of lesser joys, of what we think brings us satisfaction in pursuit of ultimate satisfaction in God. And I want to be about what millions and millions of other saints for the last thousands and thousands of years have been about, which is purging themselves of their own desires to pursue affection in Christ. I, I was reading, and I think this is just a, you don't have to turn there, but please go back and look at it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. This is a story, uh, this is a, a part in Hebrews. He's talking about Moses, the writer of Hebrews. And here's what he says. I start, in verse, I start in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ or the, the rebuke of Christ Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to his reward. I want to be about that. I want to be about eternal, substantive things. One of my favorite pastors is a guy in Washington, D.C. His name's the Bidi Anyabwile. Here's what he says. The way to get our deepest needs met in this world is to follow Jesus into the next world. I think about that. Inevitably, if we do take up our cross and follow Jesus, it will cost us. And one of the ways that we see that, and this is point number two if you're following along an outline, is that the Christian life is marked by suffering. 
life is already hard enough. Um, and I, I don't want you to think that this is my opinion. So I, I've pulled eight verses. And I'm not going to read all of them. The, the entirety of all of them. There are many more in scripture. The Bible is filled with scripture that is implicit and explicit. That if we are Christians, we will suffer. So let me just, I'm just going to blow through these verses. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Romans 5, 3, and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance. Romans 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Do not lose heart. This light Momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Philippians 1, 29. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Last two. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes, as though something strange were happening. And 1 Peter 5, 10. After you have suffered a little while, God will confirm, strengthen, and restore you. And let me just, just to be clear about what I mean by suffering. I mean cancer. I mean criticism. I mean depression. I mean the death of family members. I mean miscarriages. I mean spousal unfaithfulness. I mean anxiety. I mean physical ailments, isolation, natural disasters, and the list goes on and on and on. And I know many of your stories, and many of you know my story. And we've all, in some varying degree, have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience suffering. And it's, it's, this, is, this, is, this is really important. I just want to acknowledge this. That we believe, and this is, this is theologically foundational, that we believe that God is sovereign over everything. There is no circumstance. There is no situation. There is no good deed. And there is no evil deed that is outside of his care and providence. And so let me clarify, because here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying in any way that God is responsible for evil. That is a lie from Satan, that's heresy, and that is biblically untrue. But what we see in Scripture is really... Two things working together. And we, we, we can't dive into this too much. God has a moral will. Moral instruction. Right? Give you an example. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But, adultery happens. 
God uses it in his sovereign will for his good and his glory. So God, there's a moral will and there's a sovereign will. I'll give you an example biblically. David and Bathsheba. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you scroll down the, the line of David, David and Bathsheba had a son, Solomon, and all the way down, Jesus Christ was born from David and Bathsheba's lineage. So, David broke God's moral will by committing adultery. But God sovereignly used it for our joy, for his glory. And so, what we see in, even in the story of Job, is that Satan approaches God about coming after Job. And so, the question I would ask is, how do God's moral will and sovereign will work? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know, but they do. And so, no matter what you've endured, what you will endure, it is essential that we be a people that believe that God is in control of everything. Everything. And let me just, I just want to say this. If, if evil is temporarily allowed the upper hand, it is ultimately for God's glory and our joy, and it won't always be that way. So be encouraged in that. And so the, the life of a Christian is absolutely marked by suffering. And let me just, I think there's three things in particular that make suffering hard. And Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to die. So Jesus lived out a life of suffering. Jesus lived out a life of cross-bearing. And if we want to be like Christ, we too ought to do both of those. And so I think there's three things in particular that make suffering difficult outside of the physical or emotional pain that comes with suffering. First thing I think is, is because it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing. It's hard to be afflicted mentally, emotionally, I, I struggle personally with um, significant anxiety attacks. And I have probably for 15 years. And I know many of you struggle with physical ailments or depression or other things. Those are real. Let's acknowledge that for what it is. And it's suffering. So the first thing I think is it's hard. The second thing is we oftentimes don't know why it happens. You know, it's like going to the doctor. You know something's off. You, you care what it is, but you care more about just getting some peace. Like, okay, just tell me what it is. You know, what's the diagnosis? I can handle it, whatever it is. And so there's an element of fear that comes to make suffering hard because we don't know very often why we're suffering. And God is doing 10,000 things that we can't see any of them. But he is. And I think, I think Job is a perfect example of that. Job had no idea. He asked his friends, why is this happening? 
And you know what God's response was to him? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God didn't give him an answer. I think the third aspect that makes suffering particularly hard is that oftentimes it's prolonged. It feels like it, it goes on forever. And we see that in uh, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Many of you would be familiar with when Paul is saying, a messenger of Satan came and afflicted me. as a thorn in my flesh. And three times I pleaded with God to remove the thorn. But God said, my grace is sufficient for my power is perfected in weakness. So, so what happens is oftentimes what we beg God for is his delivering grace. Deliver me from this trial. But at times what he gives us instead is his sustaining grace. So what we beg for is his delivering grace, but what he offers us is something sweeter. And it's his sustaining grace. When we suffer, friends, we, we have an opportunity to show other Christians and the world around us that our treasure is not in this world. And so point number three, and we're wrapping up. The Christian life is marked by cross-bearing. It's marked by suffering. But the Christian life is also marked by seeing and enjoying the glory of God above everything else. That is God's sustaining grace for us. And this is, as a Christian, all of biblical theology, doxology, ecclesiology, soteriology, eschatology, everything that you can say finds its root in this principle. The glory of God is the foundation of everything else in the Bible and in the universe. And it is, for the Christian, it is the softest place that we can lay our heads. And so let me, we don't have time to dive in. I would love to. We don't have time to dive into the glory of God fully, but I would encourage you to do this. At the end of the book of Exodus, when we were preaching through and thinking through Exodus for nine months, in May, we preached two sermons on the glory of God. On May 8th and May 15th, I would adamantly encourage you to go back and listen to both of those. It is worth its weight. Uh, May 8th and May 15th, we unpacked what the glory of God was and why we should want it. And so please go back and do that. It would be very helpful. But let me give us a definition of the glory of God as we wind down. The glory of God is the public display of his beauty and his worth. So it's, it's when God sort of goes public with his godness. It's when he allows us to see his beauty and his worth and his holiness and his majesty. So the Christian life is marked by being able to see that 
to recognize that and then to enjoy it as a treasure. As we grow in maturity, hopefully, it's a lot like a a sunset. You guys ever, I'm not much of a morning person, so I'm a sunrise guy. Or no, sunset, I'm a sunset guy. I'm not a sunrise guy. So I haven't seen too many sunrises. But for those of you that have, I hear what happens is... You're just kind of out there, whether it's on the beach or your porch or whatever it is, and it's totally pitch black. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of peaks up, right? And there's kind of a, and the next thing you know, 10 minutes later, the whole sky is lit up. That's what happens as we grow in maturity as Christians, is that we get a taste of the, the sweetness and the goodness of God's glory. And the more that we pursue him and find our satisfaction in him, the more clearly that sunrise becomes, the more clearly and evident we can see and recognize and enjoy the glory of God. You know, we, I heard a, a, a dear, dear saint uh, say that to know one thing about Christ is not to know everything about him. That Christ is an, an inexhaustible or an uh, undrainable fountain of mercy and goodness and richness and love. That, you know, that's what the old hymn, Amazing Grace, it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, we will only just have begun. We can never exhaust the glory of God. We, we, we can never get to the end of what that is that forever and ever our joy and our satisfaction and our delight in him will continue to grow at a never-ending, infinitely energetic pace. And so our pursuit of that doesn't have an end. And so we should never believe the, the temptation or the, the lie of Satan that we don't need to pursue the glory of God. We don't need to pursue his worth and his beauty We do, because we can never get to the end of it. And that is where our satisfaction is found. It is is the most important command in the Bible to find our maximum joy and pleasure in God, no matter the cost. And it's not only an obligation we have to do that for ourselves, but to bring as many other people along with us in that. Christians, non-Christians, to bring them and let them know the beauty, as 2 Corinthians says, the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says this, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. There's this this weaving together that we are to deny ourselves of lesser joys, lesser things, for pursuit of satisfaction in God. And inevitably in doing that, 
We will suffer for it. But that God offers us his sustaining grace, which is our ability to see and enjoy his glory. That's what Paul means when he says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Christians ought to be the happiest people on earth. I'm not. And that goes back to my personal struggle with delighting in God above everything else. But I want to be about that, no matter the cost. And so whether you're in here and you are not a Christian, you're not even, you're not even considering things of the faith. I hope that you would consider finding true joy and contentment and worth in Christ. Because everything else, it's like, it's like cotton candy. It's just, it's vapor. It's fleeting. It's fool's gold. Or, or maybe you're in here and you're like me. You have failed in some way to pursue your delight in Christ. And I want to say it's not too late for you. You can have and know the joy and rest and peace that comes when we delight in God. Or maybe you're here and you say, I am finding my treasure in Christ. Then will you bring me and other people along with you in that? Will you encourage us when it's hard? Will you rebuke me when I need it? Will you remind me of God's promises when I'm tempted to wander, to, to, to drift over here and find delight in the world and, and pleasure everywhere else? Will you remind me that real joy is only found in Christ? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.